Hey guys, welcome back to the OPD podcast with Joe and Austin. We have a Q&A episode for you guys this week. Austin put the Q&A out on the Instagram, so we're going to freestyle it. I don't know the questions, um, so hopefully I know the answers, <laughs> or at least one of us do, and then um, we'll roll into it. But firstly, Austin, how you doing, man? How's your week been since the last podcast? Pretty good. Yeah, just really busy. Um, had a... Had the calcium score done this week, which, you know, anytime you get blood work or anything done, you're always kind of nervous because yeah. you just don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know if it's probably going to look bad or good, but you're nervous anyhow. Was it like a zero? It was. It was actually every – because they um, – it looks at basically all the – you know, all the major arteries. And I think there's four different spots where they, they score it. And then it also looks at the imaging also sees your lungs too. Okay. So they note that on there, like any type of fluid or pneumonia or anything going on in the lungs. But yeah, everything was actually completely zero, not at all. Beautiful. So that's what you want. Yeah. And, awesome. You know, what's, what's funny is I, I posted it, posted on my, Facebook and my Instagram and said, you know, it never hurts to be preventative. And someone comments that, and I, I go into the guy's profile. I don't even care if he hears me. I normally don't stir shit, but I really don't care. He uh, says, technically it's a wasted test, not preventative to be preventative. It should change something about your lifestyle, diet or medications, but Hey man, good test. What? I'm like, why? I'm like, all right. <laughs> That's like that's like saying it's a bad thing to go in and look and see what's going on inside your body. That's and it looked I think it said DO on its profile, which is a doctor. So if that's the case, that's that whole fucking idea of, you know, be reactive, not preventative. Like you can't it's hard to even it's hard to even go in here in the you know US and get a test like that done unless you have fucking chest pain or something. Mm. You know, most you doctors want to do it. Does he organize it for you? Yeah, because so so basically you would just go to the doctor and you would you would they write a referral or a prescription for whatever the test is, right? And then you just go to a like you'd go to a lab and they would they would do it for you. But but my point is that most doctors won't even write the referral. Like if you just go in and say you want it, unless you're really, really old or you have a pre existing condition or you have something to even get it is hard. Yeah, that's the same as here. You, there's no way in hell I could go to my GP and ask for a, a calcium score and, and, and they'd offer it. No, no way. Yeah, it's just bullshit. Like, why does it hurt to see what's going on inside your body, especially if you're paying for it? Yeah, there seems to be a really, like, a real distaste for offering any, like, clinical help in, in the UK, which is odd because it doesn't come out of the doctor's salary. I understand right. somewhere someone's paying for it you know um right. despite us paying taxes for, for these services but yeah it's, it's bizarre like you know if i went into my gp and said can i have some pod work because i take steroids they'd, they'd laugh me out of the office yeah all right <laughs> but why, yeah. why aren't i entitled to that like isn't that yeah. like, i don't know yeah so that's why like i said you almost have to and i'm not saying it's the same like it's it's doctor's discretion so if they'll if they'll write it then you can get it but most of the time you would have to go in and you would have to have symptoms of something. Mm. And it's, I don't know, it's ridiculous, but anywho, that was my rant. 
He probably doesn't listen to the podcast, but I don't care. Well, good news though, man. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Happy about that. So maybe next time do the, uh, EKG and stuff. See how that looks. But now, I I had um, an echocardiogram planned, but then quarantine. Um, the actual private medical center running them isn't running for the period, so I've got to wait. Um, yeah. But I'll get that as soon as I can. Yeah. Yep. That's so, and that's how it was here. So he he actually wrote me the referral back in March, but they just restarted elective procedures. And they considered mine elective because it wasn't like it, I didn't have a heart attack or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if it had been an emergency, he could have got me in the same day, but they didn't, you know, I was like, whatever. So the things are kind of moving your way then with the quarantine stuff, there's been some changes. Yeah. They, it's a, it's a state by state basis since federal government gives the power to the states so each state can kind of determine it, but a lot of the places are opening and now it, there's just been so much tension that a lot of these like businesses and stuff are doing petitions and they're suing the states and all this shit. So it's, they're opening it up. They're, they're putting so much pressure on I know Ohio's opening now because one of the courts in Ohio actually ruled against the governor's and the health department's orders to keep gyms closed. The gyms can open now. Mm. and yeah it's just very heated yeah we we haven't really had any any real movement uh, in the last week we entered another a phase apparently of moving out of quarantine but i'm not sure what actual realized changes have been happened um like practicality wise i don't think much has much has actually happened yet yeah i don't know i I, we were supposed to open next week anyhow, gyms were, but this just rushed it a little bit. Now there are still, like there are still some states that they're not even close. You know what I mean? Like uh, California and shit like that. Though, fuck, who knows? They'll probably never open again. Well, and like, I, it's like we talked about last time. These people are receiving so much in unemployment, like, mm-hmm. and they're not gonna. They're not going to go back. And now I don't know how much of this is true because you see everything online, but I don't, I don't know what's true. But there was word that federal government may start cutting some of the funding to these states that aren't, you know, that basically aren't pushing people to get back to work. Right. So now if that happens, that'll be a different story. You got any you know, in Ireland? Thailand? Ireland. Ireland. Uh, right now, no, I don't. I have a couple in the UK. We have a couple like Australia. Um, you mentioned Thailand. Thailand's an interesting one because I've got quite a few clients in Thailand and their gyms have just reopened, haven't they? Just the last couple of days. Yeah, that's interesting, which to me, that's. I'm, I was surprised about that. I thought it would actually take longer for them, but. I mentioned Ireland because I've got a bunch of clients in Ireland and um, they, they've they been given word that their gyms aren't going to open until mid-August. Um, Holy shit. And that's the official government statement. So, you know, that is a long time. Yeah, I mean, that that's three months, you know, essentially three more months. What's, I don't know, 
I don't know what their government structure is like there. Like, I don't know really what kind of system they have in place. Uh, I don't know. I should know because it's all part of the United Kingdom, but it doesn't quite all tie into one governing body. It's quite confusing. Right. Yeah. And it's, and that's what, that's like how we are here. So, you know, we're, we're an open economy, but we have different views on both ends within the same country. And then when you give power, like states, their own separate powers, that's where shit gets weird. Yeah. You yeah. know, so it's like, like you have some states that are very conservative and some states that are very liberal. So they're all operating under the same nation, but they have opposing views. So it's just strange. Uh, it'll be just a memory one day, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. If, if any of those states even have population anymore, like it's funny because so many people are pissed off and they're about to move. Oh, yeah. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, that's yeah, they're like, they're like, fuck it, we're gonna go to Texas or Florida or something, you know, because <laughs> all, because they're they're up and running. Their number, their you know, infection numbers are good. Their economy's up and running. Everyone's doing fine. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if this is just life now. This is just life. We just live in a state of flux of of freedom that we're allowed, and, and we're always just maneuvering out of freedom, you know. It's an interesting thing because they, and I can see it happen. Like I, I don't comment on a lot of stuff online, but it just seems to me like they're almost, they're offering something, right? They are making it sound like they're giving us safety in return for our freedoms. Mm. You know how that's like, and some people are willing to trade that. They'll trade it, right? They'll trade it. They'll live off unemployment. They don't need to advance at all. They can just live in their little bubble and they're content, whatever. I find, yeah, I've, I find the whole thing just bizarre. Like how we have this, this much control and this much lockdown and this much hysteria over something that seems relatively like that they're, they're at least statistically seem to be worse things for us to be worrying about as a race of, of yeah and i and i could understand maybe at first because i think there was a lot of unknowns right we didn't exactly know what this thing was and how it was going to act and they were worried about medical system being overwhelmed and blah 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 mm. which is which i get that I get that. But now that never happened for one. Mm. Secondly, the statistics are so much lower than we ever expected. And now even stuff like the, the article I saw today from the, the CDC center for disease control that said that the virus isn't even, it doesn't even spread as easily on contaminated surfaces as we thought. So it's like, what the fuck are we scared of right now? <laughs> like what? What are we doing? I am the furthest thing from like a conspiracy theorist, but then I find myself thinking on this now. It's like, right, where it like plainly doesn't make sense, and I and I find myself thinking, you know, what what is the reason for a lot of this control? Right, it does. It, I mean, it like like I, I tend to be a pretty neutral person, but I 
but I'm also a logical person and you are too. You're very science minded. So you sit back and you think and you break stuff down, you know, you're thinking there's, there has to, <laughs> what, what is the reason? Yeah. I don't know. What can we do? Even if we know, man, with who are we, you know, even if this is a big conspiracy and we're put under this huge control system, what are we going to do, bro? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, like, what the fuck do you do? I mean, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. Suppose you just comply, unless the whole world um, somehow rebelled. Yeah. When maybe it would be too late. There would be too much control. End up like North Korea. Maybe that's where we're going. They, <laughs> they didn't have very many virus... They didn't have very many people infected because as soon as they got infected, they just killed them. <laughs> they just shot them. One way to do it. <laughs> Anywho, let's do something more positive. Let's uh, answer questions. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let me uh, let me grab this first question here. Let's see. All right. Okay, where's he at? Um, Wood said, will bandit isolation movements cause as much uh, cumulative fatigue as machine, machine isolation movements both done to failure? Hmm. Okay. Do you want me to hit this one first? Yeah, I mean, it's quite a strangely worded question. There'd, there'd have to be some groundwork laid on some definitions first. Um, so comparing banded to machine, essentially all we're looking at is a specific resistance profile. Um, then we might have to get a little bit more specific on the machine, like does the machine offer drop-offs at certain points of the profile? Does it better match the strength profile of the muscle belly we're talking about? Uh, so let's use um, let's use a leg extension. So with a band through the profile, um, the resistance is going to head. If you're on like an X Y axis, it's going to be almost like a a line upwards, right? Because as band tension increases, um, as the distance of the band lengthens, the resistance gets greater, right? Um, the axes of rotation here being at your knee. Whereas uh, in a good leg extension, there would be a, a degree of drop off to, to even out that resistance profile, right? Um, so, so that might be a consideration if you're thinking about potential hypertrophy outcomes. But if the question is just about accumulated fatigue, are you defining that as just metabolic accumulation? Uh, is that how we're measuring fatigue? Or is fatigue being measured by... Um, nervous system ability to innovate um, higher threshold motor units, for example, and, and with collecting fatigue that way. Um, I mean, the answer in both cases would be yes, to varying degrees. Um, and then we, I mean, we could get even more specific. What tempo are we using for each part of the range? It's a difficult question, but I mean, basically like, will they both drive accumulated fatigue via Metabolite buildup and motor unit recruitment. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, when you match, if you match output on both, it's going to be the same, right? Yeah. It's at the end of the day, it's just how you quantify that, I guess, is hard to say. I mean, if you're, there's kind of depends on, you know, how big are the bands, like what kind of intensity are you using? How much are you loading? I mean, well, I mean, but yeah, I mean, a, a body weight isometric leg extension for 10 minutes and you're going to eventually accumulate enough. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So if you're, if they're, you know, if they're just saying that they're going from 10 reps on a machine to a similar exercise and 10 reps on a band, there would be no way to really quantify that exactly. Because again, like you mentioned, the resistance curve is going to be different for one. Secondly, outside of, I mean, yeah, you could just, if, I mean, I suppose if you're going to mechanical failure in the same rep range with a similar resistance, that's probably going to be pretty similar, right? I mean, I don't know why it wouldn't, why it wouldn't be similar, but that would be very difficult to quantify. But, but I would, I would venture to say that in general, most of the people training at home with just bands are probably accumulating a little bit less fatigue than they are in the gym. Yeah, because I don't, yeah, potentially if you're not practiced at working right. through something that hasn't, doesn't offer the perfect range and you're not, I'm sorry, doesn't offer the perfect profile and you're not very internally focused, then that can certainly be an issue. Right. Outside of that, it's that's about the best answer, I think, for that question. Uh, okay. Let me see here. Let's find this next one. All right. Next one is, why do some people experience test flu? What is it and can it happen with other, just says with other, I'm assuming that means with other. Other androgens. Maybe. Okay. Have you ever had, have you ever had test flu? I have not. No. Me either. It is a thing. It is a thing. Yeah. No. I mean, some people. Some people get it with normally with like the larger influx of androgens, right? You know, just I don't know that I've ever heard of anyone getting it with like TRT or normal physiological range could be wrong. There might be somebody. Um, do you know what causes it? Um, as far as I'm aware, it's the androgen receptors um, interaction with innate immunity. So in innate immunity, the, um, the AR itself um, generates neutrophils and assists yep. the function of neutrophils. Um, because, I mean, I've just gone through all of this on a SARMS presentation that I'm putting out when we dig a little bit deeper on androgen receptor, but it regulates processes that include like wound healing and, and interaction within bone and stuff. But you see um, in adaptive immunity, there's suppressive effects on the development and activation of T cells. Um, so androgen receptor plays a distinct role in immune cells and targeting the androgen receptor um, can help in the treatment and management of, of diseases like, I mean, this is a big topic on coronavirus, right? Um, 
anyway, I'm trying to, because I know um, Dr. Dean has put a, a good story series out on these and his words will be better than mine. I'm probably just bastardizing what he said off of, off of memory here, but um, so the androgen receptor does stimulate neutrophil production by enhancing something called G uh, CSF signaling, I believe. Um, and then monocytes are recruited from the circulation into the inflamed tissues. Um, and then there's production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which I believe drive an immune response. Yeah, I, I assumed it was, I assumed it had something to do with the immune response of like a, of some type. And then, <laughs> that, yeah, that makes sense. If you, have, if you take a large degree of androgens in, in one shot, you know, you've got, you've got those, right. uh, uh, a huge amount of androgens headed for androgen receptors on immune cells, right? right. Which, which is um, relatively, um, what's a word I'm looking for here? Um, would cause them to react, would cause them to not, not enjoy this, you know? I'm, I'm trying to think of a good right. word. And, and you're going to get an inflammatory response there, uh, uh, an immune response. Yeah, I kind of assumed that. I kind of assumed it was an immune response, and there might be like some type of like cytokine influx, inflammation, or something going on. Um, but that was just my my uh, bro answer. But yeah, that makes sense. And I think people forget that there are androgen receptors in other areas other than just muscles. So, you know, that's, that does make sense. Well, there's androgen receptors everywhere, which is why. That's what I'm saying. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's, they're everywhere. Psalms are, are so fucking interested. Um, right. And hopefully to be selective. Yeah. Yeah. If they are yeah. tissue selective and, and also can be either agonists or antagonists of androgen receptors, that's where it's mostly interesting. Um, but yeah, essentially, so ways to combat this one i mean if you're getting this i'm gonna make a rash judgment that one you take too many drugs you take too high dose of androgens this shouldn't occur um your dose would be far too high two you're dosing too infrequently you shouldn't have cascading androgens like this flying at um right innate immune cells you know you, you need a i mean the higher frequency of dosing the better ideally right that was my first initial thought was dosing frequency just because just to prevent like a bolus dose, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. Yep. Um, okay. Let's roll over to the next one, which is, let's see. Uh, here's another vague question. We'll do our best. Guys, these vague questions are difficult, but we'll try it. Okay. <laughs> Is an upper lower split with four total training sessions per week good for, hang on, good for intermediate bodybuilder? Okay. Sure. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Might <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably if it meets their if it meets their requirements in terms of volume and frequency and intensity and tension and all that stuff then i wouldn't see why not i mean they say 
they say intermediate, so I guess I guess we can ex- assume they know how to train in- intensely enough, and they know how to create tension. So, yeah, I would I would assume. I don't I have anything. I don't know what we've say. got here is on is on frequency. The question is essentially asking: Is training body parts twice a week good? Right. Right. I mean, that's, if they're doing an upper lower twice a week, yeah, they're just training everything twice a week. So what can we say, you know, what can we say about what we know and also what the data says on frequency? Um, we can say that it kind of matters, but it also kind of doesn't. And yeah. I think twice per week does in clinical trials show a marked improvement in pretty much every trial likely just because of the improvement in the work uh the quality of work that you can do when you start getting above twice per week there isn't there isn't great return on benefit and it's highly individual so yeah sure i mean whatever a lot of it's going to be personal preference as well if like you fucking hate training twice a week then don't do it right you know yeah i've i know i know i've seen the data on twice a week having a benefit, but I always really assumed that was an indirect benefit just because they had better performance within the sessions because yeah. they weren't so long. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Which, which is, that's my personal experience as well. If yeah. I, yeah, I mean, if I split up my total volume between two sessions versus one, I'm going to have better performance within each of those sessions just because they're not so long and I'm not so fatigued. For sure. For sure. So, Okay. Let's go. If fasted BG is high, but postprandial is in the 80s, could this be dawn phenomenon uh, due to stressors? <clears throat> well, yes, probably. I, there's a couple things. So there's something important to understand. First is that if we look at why blood glucose might be different between fasting and postprandial. So postprandial is primarily dictated by the pancreatic response to the meal. So whatever you eat, you're going to have insulin release to accommodate for Whatever the, whatever the insulin requirements are based on what the meal is, how big it is, and what's in it. And then in the morning, like usually in the morning, a lot of it's going to be dictated by waking response as cortisol rises, right? Now, obviously, your, your pancreas is still working all night long, and in the morning, you're releasing a little bit of glucose just to keep your blood sugar stable while you sleep. And your pancreas also will release a small amount of insulin just to keep that in balance. But why would we see that surge in the morning? And that's just because that person, for whatever reason, has a heightened waking response. So they, and it can be from a number of things. I mean, yeah, it could be that they're stressed. Um, It could be that they have poor sleep, which is just stress, right? Um, I mean, it could also be that they have some that they have some insulin resistance going on, so they they have that heightened waking response, and their pancreas doesn't compensate. But there's a couple of things that I look at when I see that 
obviously stress being the first one, but one of the things you can do is you can just, let's say if you check it right when you get up and then check it like 30 minutes later and check it maybe every 30 minutes for a couple hours, what you're probably going to see is it's probably going to go down. It should, it should go down. And then my next question is going to be, well, how much higher is it in the morning than postprandial? Are we talking, are we talking like 10 points higher or are we talking like 30 points higher? You know, I mean, if we're talking pretty significant difference and the person also has um, maybe poor stress or, you know, poor stress management has poor sleep markers. If you're tracking their sleep, whatever it is, then I'm going to be more concerned because I'm, I'm going to know that there's something underlying. I mean, if they, if it's like a five or 10 point difference and they have no other markers of, you know, systemic stress and they feel pretty good, it's, it's, it is, it's fine. Some people just have a little bit more of a heightened waking response. That's not even necessarily a bad thing. Um, it just, just to what extent it gets bad. Um, you don't want to have a low waking response because you're going to be tired in the morning. And you're going to feel like shit. And those are all the people that they can't even function in the morning until they get caffeine, right? They can't do anything because they have no, they're, you know, they're, they'd have no cortisol release in the morning, but you also don't want it to be too high. So I would rather someone be maybe just tiny bit higher in the morning um, than be too low. Right. I don't know. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, man. Totally covered it. The only thing I'd add is, you know, before anybody freaks out, because what Austin said is, is totally correct. Um, but what can often happen is essentially you just didn't have sufficient fluid or electrolyte to cleave glucose overnight. So yep. you know, before you link that it could potentially be nervous system related or adrenal function related, potentially just try rehydrating with some potassium and some sodium and then check again, maybe half an hour later, like you say. And if it's gone yep. down and it's, it's normal, then, you know, yeah, it, it was just an insufficient electrolyte and fluid allowance. Maybe you just eat quite close to bed and you didn't cleave off that glucose overnight, you know? Yeah, and that's and that's essentially what I do. Anytime I see that, I'll tell them to drink maybe 32 ounces of fluid or something right away and then wait and then see what it looks like. Yeah. Because it's the same thing with lab work. You, you would see that on lab work as well if you go in for fasted lab work in the morning and you are not hydrated, and then your glucose is up compared to what it is normally, it's, it's probably just dehydration. So yeah. that's a good, that's a, I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't even say that. So, um, all right. Okay, next. All right, let's see. Oh, there it is. All right. Oh, you'll like this one techniques or tips to help the body come down and relax after lifting or working out later in the day, closer to bedtime. Okay. Um, go, go ahead. I'll let you go first. So the first thing I do with clients with this is actually what are they doing before the workout even starts? I feel like any good, and this, this goes for the whole scope of circadian rhythm management and nervous system management is, where you start is at the opposite end of the day. So a perfect pre-bed routine starts with a perfect morning. Um, 
we have a lot of data that shows actually daylight exposure. Sunlight exposure first thing in the morning is a huge regulator of melatonin secretion. Right. Um, so I would first address what you're even doing before the session. Are you taking in stimulants at a time that their active life is still going to be present near bed, for example? If you're going to bed about 10 p.m., if you're consuming caffeine past 2 p.m., it's going to still be active in the blood and causing a dysfunction to your ability to get into a deep stage of sleep. Um, I'd be addressing that. How much light are you getting in the day? How are you regulating your meal times in the day? Are you eating your meals in a state that you are sufficiently parasympathetically driven to have perfect nutrient timing, etc.? How stressful is your day before you get to the session? So they're the first things I'd tick off. And then let's say you train. I would generally recommend immediately post-workout doing some kind of actual physical activity that drives PNS function. Easiest one to do is just a, like a 10 minute walk. Um, sorry about that. I'm going to close my WhatsApp to making noises. Um, so maybe just like a 10 minute walk or even just like static stretchings and dead hangs with some deep breaths, some vagus nerve stimulation. And then you're immediately trying to switch to being parasympathetic. So let's say you get out of the gym, you get in your car, you throw your artificial light blockers on, bang, you've got that done. Let's say that you've got, um, a drink containing KSM 66, phosphatidylserine, um, lion's mane mushroom, um, alpha GPC, you know, things that are going to drive cognitive function in, in the, in the sense that we're, we're bringing you down if you wanted to be really anal about it. And, and from there on out, we're talking nitty gritties like don't work. Don't be on your phone. If you can avoid any artificial light, get home, eat your meal in a very relaxed environment. Try not to eat too close to bed because we do get rapid drop-offs in gastric acid secretion in deep stages of sleep. So especially if you're eating high degrees of muscle meat, there's going to be poor nutrient partitioning. So maybe stick to something light. Considering it's a post-workout meal, stick to things easily digesting if you're training quite close to bed. And we're immediately thinking only performing activities that are going to drive PNS stimulation, you know, reading a fictional book, even playing a relaxing game, something silly like that, but nothing stress focused or work focused, you know? Yeah, no, I like that. I use, so kind of a shameless plug. I'll use Morphogen Nutrition, Morphocom in there just mm. to. And for just you guys in the UK, I'm not sponsored, but this is uh -huh. a product. Well, no, and that, it's not a show sponsor either, but I just, but it is something that I actually do have people use and simply because it will shift, you know, it's going to shift the neurotransmitter focus to calm, right? We're talking about serotonin GABA, right? And it also contains 800 milligrams of phosphatidylserine and KSM-66. So, I mean, it's like, it's shifting that, um, that sympathetic drive to more parasympathetic and which is just what Joe said too. I mean, and, and then also, doing all the other things in terms of light elements, but I'm glad you mentioned the morning because I think it's important to, because now a lot of people are kind of aware of the limiting, you know, limiting artificial light at night, using their blue blockers, being calm before bed, all that stuff, but they forget that their circadian patterns is something that is dictated throughout the course of an entire day and not just at night. Right. So if you can, like right now, it's been very rainy. We've had a lot of rain, and not a lot of sunlight. Because normally, I like to get up and I like to open the blinds and I like to get light into my eyes. 
Mm -hmm. right? So I like to get actual sunlight into my eyes. Now, I'm not staring right at the sun, obviously, but I'm just getting some light into my eyes. But I'm not really able to do that right now because of the weather. So I'll use my my sun lamp. Sun lamp. Right. Yeah. Just use the uh, yeah. the sad lamp or the light therapy or whatever you want to call it. And I'll just leave it on the desk. Now, like a day like today where it's raining a bunch, I might just leave it on for half the day. Mm. I might just leave it on my desk. I don't point it directly at my face. I'll, I'll tilt it to the side a little bit, but I'll, but I'll leave it on and, uh, and do that. So like you said, everything really starts with what you're doing in the morning. Cause you think how our melatonin secretion and neurotransmitter secretion is designed we're supposed to have light during the morning and day and we're supposed to be dark at night. There wasn't electricity, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago or whatever. It just wasn't, that's not how our bodies are designed. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, and that's another, the perfect example I give is why like in the winter time when we have less daylight, why are you tired earlier? Yeah. Well, that's why <laughs> it's because it's dark. That's <laughs> You know, and in the summertime, it's kind of the same thing. Like, why do people that have to get up, you know, they have to get up really early in the morning and they find it really difficult to go to bed early because it's still light outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So same thing. But yeah, those are good. That's good suggestions. I like it. Okay. I think we have a, just a few more. So we'll get through these. Um, <clears throat> oh, you'll, you'll like this one too. How closely do you watch electrolyte intake? Do you prefer to eat certain foods each day to reach levels or do you supplement as well? Yeah. Okay. I had, I had a, I don't, who asked this question? Cause I had a pretty similar one on Instagram today. Um, Rob Urich. No, no different person. Oh, well, it seems people are interested then. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll take a stab at this one. So I think, uh, well, then the individual needs might vary depending on the person, depending on how much they sweat, depending on how big they are, depending on how much fluid they intake, all that good stuff. There isn't going to be like a perfect number necessarily, but um, in terms of food, yeah, if, obviously if, if you're taking in the same stuff all the time, then it might make it a little bit easier. And in general, if you look at the foods that a quote unquote bodybuilders normally going to eat, it's probably going to be a little bit higher potassium than it is sodium. Um, veggies, fruits, even meat has a, some potassium in it. Um, but we, it's still not going to give you enough. In my opinion, for most people, it's still not going to give you enough. I tend to have most people supplement with, um, with supplemental sodium and potassium. How much I have them use kind of just depends on the person. But I mean, as just a general rule of thumb, you could use your body size as some kind of dictator. I don't really know how big this person is, so it's hard to say. But you know, you, you, might, be, you might be as low as four or five grams of each, or you could be as high as 10 plus grams of each. Um, it kind of just depends. You can, you can mess with it. I would always recommend starting at a reasonable level, I would never recommend someone jumping right into like 15 grams of potassium or something ridiculous. Um, <laughs> are you going to cause your heart to lock up? Probably not, but it's still not a good idea. So, you know, always start a little bit lower. Uh, I also, 
food wise. Yeah. I mean, if you can get it through food, I think it's, I think it would be good to look at your base first. So if you want to use something like chronometer, I know you've used that app before. Um, mm. It gives you some idea. It's not perfect because mineral, you know, mineral content in different soils is never going to be the same everywhere, but it'll give you some idea of sodium potassium content of your food. You could plug in your base diet. You could see what the heck it is. And then you could, you know, see how much you need uh, because somebody like practicing a very liberal, if it fits your macros approach, probably going to have a lot different, um, you know, electrolyte intake than someone that's eating all lean meats, vegetables, and fruit. So, I mean, I consider those things. And then of course, how much water you're taking in. If you're someone that religiously, like I've had a few, <laughs> you've probably run into this. I've had a few people, they just genuinely like to drink a shitload of water. Like they'll drink, I mean, you guys use liters, right? Yeah. So we're talking in liters as, uh, I don't know, there's a few little over three liters in a gallon, I think. So these people are drinking like, you know, 10 liters a day. Yeah. And um, they, you know, Christian, I, I called him out on that the other day because he's drinks about, does he do that? Well, he drinks about 12 liters of fluid a day. Oh my God. See, I don't even like water. I don't like water that much. I just think that's, I was like, man, <laughs> we never nail down your electrolyte balance when you're doing this stuff. Puck, no. So, so to that point, if you are one of those people, I would probably recommend drinking slightly less water rather than, um, rather than increasing electrolytes simply because you don't need, you can always just use the, the urine test, right? I mean, your urine should be pretty light to like a, maybe a light straw color. It doesn't have to be completely clear all the time. Yes, it will be clear at times. I know mine's clear sometimes too, but it can be like a very, very light color and that's fine. That's still hydrated. You don't need to drink 12 liters of water. <laughs> how much how much sodium potassium was he taking it's got to be like 15 grams or more I was about, no it was about 10 potassium eight sodium but this is why I, we, we were having issues and i was trying to get him to pull the, pull the fluid down which yeah um, yeah yeah so i'll give my my two pence here um quite cool because my answer is a little bit different to yours so okay um in terms of electrolytes so sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium. Uh, mm -hmm. 90% of my clients, I do control that via a nutrition plan of kinds, um, but I also control their micronutrient, phytonutrient, antioxidant, polyphenol intake as well. I, I have that all up on Chronometer under all the USDA approved sources, and, and I make sure that they are all ticked off. That's 90% of my clients. I have a few clients that do specifically like to track their own food and we work under what i call nutritional targets per day where they have a certain degree of variation that they have to hit as a rule and i yeah. look up to them as as a coach under uh, the chronometer service the chronometer pro service and i do every single check-in we go onto their diet and we go through and we ensure that electrolyte intake and balance and of course all the other things i mentioned are are on point now this is where our answers differ a bit actually these days and this has changed a bit i will very seldom use supplementary potassium with anybody okay. because i when i utilize these nutritional targets or honestly 
if an individual has 200 grams of protein, which is pretty much everyone in this cohort, plus 40 grams of net carbs, which is nothing, I can hit eight grams of potassium easy dietarily. And if yeah. I do oh, it yeah. for nutrition, I will do it. And, you know, no one's going to struggle to get those in. It just it requires a degree of thought that I think 99% of people wouldn't be able to manage unless a coach did it for them, which is why most of my don't do this because it is quite a laborious process. Um, but then, of course, we will supplement, so to speak, with sodium because you, you add salt to your meals. But that is weighed and accounted for just like any other food as well. It's not just... Um, liberally applied as such we do need to balance that with, with all other electrolytes and, and track that um so yeah our answers only really differ in the sense that seldom will i use uh, a, a supplement these days just because i've taken an approach of greater control over clients diet so to speak um but i think for the general population um you they would probably require a a, a low salt like um salt substitute or something because you know i'm talking 20 different fruits and vegetables every single day you know to to hit these numbers um which yeah. i don't actually think is that hard i think people freak out when they hear that but you know let, let's look at breakfast let's say i have eggs with spinach mushroom garlic and onion and then i have some oats with blueberries raspberries and strawberries that's not crazy is it well that's seven different types in one meal you only got to get 20 in the day you know, right it's really not that hard when you just put some thought into it um and in terms of nutrient density and variety you can quite easily hit all of your micros phytos and potassium if, if you're doing something like that yeah our answers aren't that much different than the only difference and you kind of actually said the same thing as me and that it matters whether or not i'm setting up their plan or they're plugging in their own foods yes because if i'm setting up their plan i'm gonna have it built in yes yeah, I'm gonna I, I left them to their own devices. I, I guarantee. In fact, I guarantee every single one of my clients wouldn't hit the <laughs> right ratio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but it is like it seems like tedious, like you said. But when you've when you've done it a bunch of times, it's not. I mean, you know, you know basically what needs to go into it, and then you plug it in based on their their caloric and macronutrient needs, and it's not all that difficult on our end once you've done it. Um. <laughs> But it does seem, it does seem like a tedious task. Uh, but I think people forget. People are just very, uh, very close-minded in terms of what foods they can actually eat. Yeah. Which is, I think that's really where the problem lies. Um, but yeah, no, we're not that much different. I, <laughs> a lot of my, except outside of like people that are very, very small or on very low calories, it's not difficult. There's one other caveat we could add in there too would be higher intakes of food could potentially require higher electrolyte intake simply because we got to remember electrolytes are transport nutrients, especially for glucose. Yeah. Right. So you might, I don't, I would be honest. I won't, I won't change someone's electrolyte intake every single time I increase their carbs. No, it's yeah. not like, I don't think that's necessary at all, but I might, change it slightly if someone has gone from let's say 100 grams to 800 grams <laughs> over a course of time i might change that but again yeah that's a good question i like that so um in that chronometer app i use with a lot of people so if anyone's not seen it that's a great resource 
Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. And you yeah. can look people up with it as well. It's cool. They offer um, Chronometer Pro. You can just sign your clients in on it and you can write them diets and they get it their end, which is quite good. Yeah, it's a fan. It's a fantastic app. I think because I think we talked about it maybe a couple years ago and I've used it ever since. So it's it's good. Um, okay. Okay. Just maybe two more, I think. Ideal supplementation to maximize hormonal health and longevity of a 55-year-old male. Um, they stay outside of the realms of HRT. So I'm guessing they're asking if there's some particular over-the-counter supplementation that we would recommend based on their age bracket. For hormonal function only. Uh, they said hormonal health and longevity. So I guess that's that's kind of a blanket question. Uh, it would be any I it, longevity is a big that's a broad term that could be anything. Um, so I know my answers. My answer is not going to vary that much um, over someone else because I mean, really, if we're looking at over the counter supplementation, I think that. I'm going to look at it from a preventative aspect and then also any type of pre-existing condition I'm always going to consider. Now, obviously, as someone gets older, they might be, their chances of certain things may increase. So that may change the answer a little bit, but if, but without knowing anything about this person, because they're not giving us any type of pre-existing condition or genetic predisposition to something from their family or anything, they're just saying, ideal i'm gonna say the basic it's gonna be the same shit that probably everyone else is gonna take you know i don't know what would be a whole lot different without seeing their now if, if i had this person's lab work i could tell i could tell you a lot more um but yeah i mean typical stuff for a high quality omega-3 supplement we're gonna do probably gonna need supplemental vitamin d based on where they live and how much sun exposure they get, probably want potentially some supplemental magnesium, depending on how much they get through their diet. I may want, I'm probably going to do, assuming budget is any type of issue, I'm probably going to do some cardiovascular support via Ubiquinil, PQQ. Um, oh God, I would literally have to sit down and write a list. There's a bunch of shit that I would, I would probably have them take. We might do uh I might throw in some additional ingredients for prostate support since that can tend to be an issue at that age. Um, man, that, I don't know, like that's, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, you could do, if they're not opposed to stuff that's not over the counter, you, um, like a, a maintenance dose of metformin would be a great addition long-term like that for that person, especially just for potential anti-cancer properties and um, insulin resistance. I mean, if they have issues with that, they might even consider a low dose of basal insulin, something that you and I have talked about for anti-aging. I mean, it's, fuck. I don't know. Like, I don't know what else you would add. They need to tell us more. <laughs> yeah. My answer here would be, you're not going to realize any therapeutic outcome from an, an over-the-counter supplement if you have any kind of physiological dysfunction in 
your um, HPG axes and your thyroidal axes and your growth hormone IGF-1 axes. Um, yeah. The, uh, or, or as Austin said, any like cellular insulin resistance or beta cell dysfunction. Um, you're not going to realize any real like therapeutic level of, of outcome unless you go the pharmaceutical route. Yeah. So, the general, general health recommendations, yes. Everyone should be using D3. Everyone should be using a, a quality source of EPA and DHA, like fish oil or krill oil. Magnesium, chromium potentially. Um, good clinical outcomes for improving glucose tolerance. Zinc. Maybe a B12 injection monthly. I think K2, the MK7 variety. Um, That's why I had that zero calcium score. And yes, well, probably is. <laughs> um, in terms of like antioxidants, there, there's some great ones like green pea extract. Metformin, as you say, is an antioxidant. is excellent. NAC, potentially. Taurine. Ubiquinol, as you said. And, um, actually, melatonin has some real great effects on on actually fat loss um and it's a very powerful antioxidant um maybe some just nervous system support like ksm 66 5-hdp yeah l-theanine but the thing is all of these things are just scratching the surface when you know potentially physiologically what you might require would be a dose of testosterone potentially a basal insulin a low dose of growth hormone um metformin right uh, potentially an angiotensin receptor blocker you know, if you really wanted hormonal optimization, you would have to go down the therapeutic route. There's a reason why these drugs are clinically deployed and funded um, because they work. Um, you know, yeah. If you have, because if you have an age related decline in your HPTA function, nothing over the counter is going to help. No, it's not. I mean, it's just not. And if you have, if you have an age related decline in like uh, arterial health, for example, you might get some help from your omega threes and your K two and, and all that. I would encourage someone to take it for sure, maybe to at least prevent further, you know, further damage. K two has been shown to potentially help reverse arteriosclerosis, maybe like you know, but but again, it's you're gonna have to go, you're gonna have to go clinical route for sure. I agree. I totally agree. I think people <laughs> people get this idea that it's there's all these over-the-counter supplements are going to just save them all the time. And that's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a bodybuilder mentality, right? Take your baby aspirin so you can sleep at night. Yeah. So you can take your gram of trend. Right. Yeah. But we don't know anything about the person, but all the stuff you mentioned that I mentioned, I pretty much take all that shit anyhow. And I'm sure you do. Yeah. So nothing wrong with that. A lot of it's going to be more preventative than anything. If you already have something going on, it's not going to necessarily dig you out of that hole. Um, okay. Let's see. That's all of those. I think I have one more on my messenger and we'll be done. Let me look. All right. I'm just going for a quick toilet break. Read the question. I'll be back in less than one minute. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, this is the last one. Best ways or exercises to 
help fix an interior pelvic tilt. Thank you. Okay. I don't know if Joe heard the anterior pelvic tilt, but uh, okay. So anterior pelvic tilt, a lot of the time there's some, like I tend to notice people are poor in a hip. Did you hear my question? Um, was it exercises to help anterior pelvic tilt? Yeah, I was just about to, to give a little answer there. So go in, man. So just from, well, first off, you may want to talk to a licensed physical therapist. That'd be a good person to talk to. Secondly, um, just in my observation, I tend to notice people that have that issue um, normally have something, normally have some weakness in the posterior chain somewhere that's causing that pelvic tilt. Um, they're typically potentially not very good in hip hinging movements. Um, and the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to try to figure out what part of that chain is weak. And then normally the weakness is a result of poor activation because if they've been training for a while, they've probably been training that muscle or at least they're trying to train that muscle. They're just not doing it very successfully. So again, first off, try to figure out what the weak link is and then uh, help with activation. If it is in fact something in the posterior chain, hip hinging, am I going to throw them right in and do a hip hinging movement like an RDL? Well, maybe, but that might not even help if they have poor activation, you know? So um, I might need to isolate the area to help. We might do something like some of the things I like, if it, maybe if it's a glute or hamstring, something, some of the stuff I like are like glute marches, various types of glute marches, potentially bridges, if they can do them and activate the muscle, uh, things like reverse hypers, you know, all that you've been like setting up a hyperextension the right way could potentially help depending on leg placement and knees and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, first things first, it's a, it's a simple thing. And this is, I think you could apply this to pretty much any type of postural issue is, well, what holds your posture in place? Typically it's your muscular, you know, your muscular structure, right? Why, why do people have shoulders that rotate forward? Well, it's probably because they have some weak posterior muscle or they have tight pecs in the front or something. So figure out what the issue is work on activation of that muscle, train that muscle in isolation, and then train that muscle in a heavier loading fashion when you're able to, to activate it. That's, that's really it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my answer to this one would be, when we look at anterior pelvic tilt, biomechanically, we're, we're pretty much saying, your hips are, are flexed, you're constantly in a state of hip flexion, and yeah. you're, and or your spinal erectors are going to be, you know, shortened. They're in a shortened yeah. contracted position. So we essentially need to drive your ability to extend the hips. So anything driving hip extension, training the hip extensors through a good profile. So exactly like you said, hip hinging movements and ensuring that you are driving. In fact, I've literally just had this with a client today, Matt, who I know this person. Um, <laughs> Where we're talking about, he was he was doing rack calls, but we analysed them, and it, and it was very much like um, working through knee extension rather than hip right. extension. 
function. You know, you yep. need to be sure that you are actually working the hip extensors or you will drive um, uh, hip, uh, just staying in hip flexion, which is a problem that he's had. He's had this, in fact, this is very relevant to this question because he's had, he, he's, um, he's going to laugh at this because we spoke about this today. He's an older guy, right? I'm going to use that term. Um, bodybuilding for years and years and he's got some like trunk issues, issues with bracing. And this is what we see yep. here. You don't yep. train the spine through flexion under load. So that would be another one. And you don't train the hip extensors for a full range. You, you negate that by reaccommodating that force um, to another joint, essentially. Like rather than training through hip extension, you're training through knee extension when you're doing a rack pull or an RDL or something. And, and when you're yep. training abs, instead of training through spinal flexion and extension, you're, you're essentially just flexing at the hips again to rock backwards and forwards. Um, yep. my, my advice would be to, to pick a, like an RDL or, or you could reduce the shear through your spine and, and reverse band an RDL if you wanted to be really sure to take the shear off of your spinal erectors and put it purely onto your hip extensors. That would be amazing. And um, train very slowly and purposely with full internal focus through hip extension and do the same with um, spinal flexion and, and spinal extension as well to a degree. Just get good internal focus actually working the spine for a full range. Um, you know, that would be my advice here. Just uh, fix the fix the weakness that's driving the tilt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, you got to, first off, you just got to figure out what it is. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, you can probably like you, you gave an example of your client. If you were to look like if I'm to look at a photo of someone, especially if they've been training for a while, I can normally tell just based on what they tell me, potentially pain in certain areas and also the development of their actual muscles. I can, you can look at it. I mean, you can see if something's glaringly weak, even though they've been training it for a long time, their activation probably sucks. Yeah. You can, yeah, I mean, you can just see it. It's going to be harder to see in a beginner or someone that's detrained because they don't have that much muscle, but especially in someone that's been training a while and, and has a decent amount of muscle. Yeah. I mean, you can just, you can look at a photo of them and look at their posture and look at the development of their muscles and you're probably going to even tell. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That was a good, that was a good Q and a nice mixture of questions. A couple of, Couple were a little vague, but that's all right. They were yeah, good questions. Thanks, guys, for sending the questions. It was awesome. It was good fun. That's it. That's it. We're done. Beautiful. Well, thanks, guys, for listening. As always, keep an eye out for the next Q and A. We try to get at least uh, one a month done. And um, if you are listening, guys, please do repost on your stories on Instagram. We love to see that, so we can share it onto onto our stories as well. And um, as I say, keep your eyes peeled for the next Q and A please check out the sponsors below that help keep this show rolling and we will catch you guys next week.